it seems to me like he was successful in his escape in spite of his best efforts, not because of them. Welcome to For You, The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, Prisoner of War, Escapes with me, Dave. And me, Tony. And today we've got one that is right up my street, actually. Flight Lieutenant Dennis Martin Cowley of the Royal Air Force. Now, Royal Air Force is right up my street. So, Dave, when you sent this over and I saw the top line, I thought, this is a really interesting chat. Because let's say he had a fairly busy time in internment in the continent, but uh, it was how he got there that fascinated me. Because mm. I saw at the top of the paperwork, it said 19 Squadron ADGB. Now, ADGB is the Air Defence of Great Britain, which at the time of him being shot down in 41 wasn't actually around but by the time of him doing his interview it was in 1944 okay. so adgb it makes sense i mean to, to put a little little tiny bit of background onto why this uh, this chap happened to be in the air the air defense of great britain was was thought about in the 1920s as a way to protect the uk mainland but it was only around about 1936 it consisted of a, a lot of squadrons and jointly with the army along with anti-aircraft guns and then in and out the observer corps and balloons and everything else that you can imagine would be useful in the defence of Great Britain. Well, in 1936, they formed that into Fighter Command and then everyone's heard of Fighter Command Mm -hmm. through the Battle of Britain and managed to push back the German invasion. But realistically, from the end of 1940... The Germans had air superiority from the south coast, south and east, really, from there. And the Blitz, of course, was going on through November mm-hmm. right the way through till May 1941, and that was at night. Spitfires and Hurricanes, they weren't particularly good in night fighting. So we really were on the defensive all of that time with our fighter squadrons. So when Dowding left Fighter Command and they brought in Air Marshal Sir William Douglas, he took over and said, look, I'm going to take the battle to the enemy. We're going to use our fighters and we're going to push into France. We're going to start doing these sweeps. It's one of these sweeps that that Cowley was on when he was shot down. Okay. Now, you could question whether or not these swoops were beneficial. Effective. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, you could, there's a lot of questions <laughs> over this. I mean, they had various ones. They gave them code names. Dennis doesn't mention it in his uh, his particular one, but we can put together what it was. The main ones were rhubarb, which was when you'd send a pair of fighters at low level, generally in bad weather, to pick up opportune <laughs> targets. So they would go over, hopefully there's no Luftwaffe around, you pick up a train, you pick out a lorry, and you go but you were really vulnerable to small arms fire. Then they had the rodeos, which were large-scale, send lots of aeroplanes over at height, try and get the Luftwaffe up into the air to attack them. But the Luftwaffe went, not really interested in doing that. Mm -hmm. It's not really much benefit. So that didn't work either. So the really difficult one to to get was the the circus ones, where they would send over light bombers to basically act as bait to bring the Luftwaffe up, and then the fighters would go into them. But it, it had catastrophic results. I mean, effectively, during the summer of 1941, there were 90 of these sweeps with the loss of 300 aircrew. Right. Just in 90 sweeps. So much so... And these are in single-seaters? Mostly in single-seaters, yeah. And by by November of 1941, it got called off. They went, Mm -hmm. this is not going to happen. So it wasn't until really 1943 when they brought in the 2nd Tactical Air Force that really offensive operations with the Royal Air Force started again Mm -hmm. in the continent. And that's when they brought back ADGB again, which is why it appears on his form in 1940. 44 but let's let's take it back to where we were so he describes the events that led up to his capture which in themselves are not unusual but Mm -hmm. quite relevant here 
Um, he said he took off from Westmorland in a Spitfire on the 27th of June 1941 at 1900 hours on a sweep over France. Well, it was it was obviously a rodeo because looking at the results that day, there were actually seven squadrons in operation that day. And uh, all in all, there would be eight losses during mm-hmm. the course of the day, five of which were prisoners of war and three would be killed in action. So okay. it was not a good day for the Royal Air Force, including two from 19 squadron. Cowley and Andrews were both lost, both becoming prisoners of war. And he says, uh, I became separated from my formation between Dunkirk and Saint-Omer by three Messerschmitt 109s. After their second attack, I discovered that I'd been shot in the right thigh. Right. So evidently adrenaline must have been running quite yeah. high during this to not notice. <laughs> during After the two attacks, Exactly. Yeah. That you were wounded uh, and that white vapour was pouring from the engine. Well, now... Generally, that's going to be fairly catastrophic for okay. a Spitfire. If it's black, then you're burning too much fuel. Okay. So something is leaking or something is packed up or something is blocked. I think you've got the carburetor damage. It will lead to engine failure. Okay. If it's blue, it's oil. You only have a certain amount of oil in your aeroplane. Once it's gone, it's gone. Mm-hmm. It will lead to engine failure. And white, which is what Cowley saw, well, that's coolant. You obviously need coolant in a water-cooled engine mm-hmm. to keep it cool and keep it running. So if you're seeing white coming out, again, you have very little time. And then- so, so basically, if you see vapour, you're done, regardless of what colour it is. <laughs> effectively (laughs) it's just a measure of how long if it's black you probably want to get out fairly soon because more likely than not it's on fire somewhere that you can't see if it's white or blue it will keep running but only to the point where it is going to stop okay and he obviously realized this because he says the engine began to misfire and finally stopped after the attacks i had headed towards england and was flying at approximately twenty thousand feet when the engine cut I was then over the English Channel and I bailed out at approximately 5,000 feet at about 9 o'clock at night. Having a look at where he was, he had about 40 miles to go. Mm-hmm. We've all seen the Dunkirk film where the Spitfire seems to glide for endless time. Yes. It's not massively realistic. Running a few figures through for what a Spitfire could do, he probably covered about 28 miles of those 40 okay. that he had to do, which would have put him about 6 or 7 miles off the French coast. So okay. a lot closer to Calais than Dover. Okay, But he elected to get out 5,000 feet, plenty of time for his parachute to open he hasn't left it anymore it's obvious he's not going to make it all the way across the water yeah. but he says he landed in the water and inflated my dinghy i remained in the dinghy until the evening of the 29th of june when i was picked up by a german merchant convoy and taken to dieppe right so i had a couple of questions at this point god no one of it which you've already answered which was how far could a plane effectively glide from twenty thousand to five thousand feet yeah which You've addressed. Give or take a couple of miles. Yeah, yeah. give so or take six to eight, mi- yeah. eight miles out into the channel. Yes. So the, the next question was, he then spent two days and nights in a dinghy on the channel. Mm-hmm. Which is quite wild. I suppose my question was, less so the aspect of survival because... I'm aware from covering previous escapes, Oliver Philpot, who featured in our second episode of Series 1, yep. actually was shot down over the North Sea and survived for about two days himself. Yep. So I'm aware that they generally had survival kits. The question I had was, how unlucky was he to have been in the English Channel for two entire days and to end up being picked up by the Germans? Because <laughs> in Philpot's case, he was about two miles off the Norwegian coast. Right. So, and he kind of drifted in and out with the tide, so at one point he couldn't see the coast, but he was obviously more Norway than Scotland. Mm. So it was almost inevitable that if he was going to be picked up, it was going to be by the Germans. But if you're in the middle of the English Channel in 1941, you is he grossly see- unlucky? Or? Oh, I, I would say it would be frustratingly unlucky, because okay. probably for the majority of that. I mean, he was, we're talking summer here, 27th of June to 29th mm-hmm. of June. Whilst I haven't got the weather reports, one would assume that it might be reasonable summer weather, mm-hmm. and it was more than likely he would be able to 
to see the White Cliffs of Dover and the Pas de Calais because he's more than likely only <laughs> the entire time, <laughs> the entire time, and <laughs> being that, that that close to home could be most unfortunate. But mm. maybe I mean we obviously know he was wounded in his thigh. Mm-hmm. Um, there would have been a small paddle along with your dinghy, but mm-hmm. twenty six miles at that point, mm-hmm. uh, which is the water crossing there. Assuming you're wounded, you've lost a lot of blood. Mm-hmm. You do have some sustenance in your survival pack, like chocolate and bits and pieces like that. But mm-hmm. it's more sun hat for protection, heliograph for trying to attract attention yeah. of other people, and various first aid measures, potentially even including morphine, which you might have self-administered to ease the pain of having been shot. So because we know from later on that actually it was quite a major. I think so. Yes, quite a major injury that he sustained it wasn't a flesh wound or if it was just a flesh wound it was certainly made worse by these two days i because by the time by by the time he became a prisoner of war and in the camp this was quite a major injury for him we we know that from but he spent time in hospital and he did indeed yes and and actually the this injury is actually quite a key aspect of this entire escape i I believe so yes i mean you know he would have been able to self-administer medical attention to himself you know he had provision within his escape kit for fishing for water purification for rations for several days so it would not have been unusual to not been too your health wouldn't have deteriorated that much in spending two days in a dinghy apart from maybe a bit of exposure in sunlight mm-hmm. strong strong sun um but uh i think that being that close to the coast it's probably quite unusual that it took two days for a passing ship to pick him up because it was a very busy channel even in mm-hmm. in wartime I mean, we've all seen the footage of the the boats being shelled and there's of course the channel dash of all the german battleships managing to get up there and mm-hmm. uh so you know it's a busy stretch of water of course well mined as well mm-hmm. which you know hopefully a rubber dinghy isn't going to <laughs> set off indeed so yeah we're talking uh a, a, you know a young man of 22 here who's been injured he's mm-hmm. in his dinghy he's just off the french coast and unfortunately in this particular instance he is picked up by uh, the german merchant convoy and mm-hmm. taken to Dieppe, which is obviously southwest of the point where he was shot down yeah so that's the point where he would have landed and as he says in his report well, he was given medical treatment in Dieppe and then taken to Paris by ambulance and then on to Dulagluft by train on the 30th of June so only a very quick medical treatment mm. seemingly if he was picked up on the night of the 29th into Dieppe probably in the early hours so he's only spent less than sort of 18-24 hours in hospital mm-hmm. and then on to Dulagluft which is well known and has come yes. up many times in previous escapes pretty so, much everyone yeah. <laughs> at some stage so right up until obviously a later point in the war when they opened the satellite camp down the road if you were air crew and you were captured in the European theatre of operations you would have ended up at Dulag Luft for mm-hmm. your initial interrogation mm-hmm. not that that stopped people trying to escape from there but that's no. that's a completely different story yes. <laughs> but he does mention that uh, he arrived in Dulag Luft on the 30th and was briefly interrogated by Lieutenant Eberhardt now Eberhardt comes up in many different prisoner of war does, yes. contexts mostly because he was highly recognisable by his Canadian accent. He was actually known as Canadian Wild Bill because he had lived in Canada before the war. Excellent detail. We enjoy this. Thank you. And (laughs) spent a large amount of time interrogating people in a thick Canadian accent. So they remembered him. And Brilliant. I believe the main interrogator at Dulag Luft had also spent a large amount of time in America. So these Fantastic. these were very well mm-hmm. spoken, recognisable, conversant in English gentlemen who were, I believe, working for the Luftwaffe. So mm-hmm. they weren't Gestapo or intelligence services, but they were obviously there to gather intelligence from the initial prisoners of war. Picking up on the quick detail here, because almost the, the cliche of the phrase for you the war is over being delivered in a thick German accent would have almost 
likely have been delivered by someone like Eberhardt. Yes. In actual fact. Yes. And actually he spoke it in a thick Canadian, Canadian accent. accent. Yes. Which probably wouldn't have worked in all the post-war films quite as well. No. No, there was a lot of stereotypes obviously kicking around in the in the fifties yeah. and sixties when this was becoming really popular because obviously prisoner of war stories is things that you and I both grew up on, mm. and many of the greatest war films were all based around it. Mm-hmm. But in particular, as he, you know, his aim was to get information out of them, and as he points out here, he says he gave me one of the usual phony in inverted brackets, Red Cross forms, Mm -hmm. which I did not complete in full. I only gave my name, rank, number, next of kin, and home address. Mm -hmm. Well, as is normally well reported, Mm. name, rank, and number is all you had to give. Mm -hmm. So once he hadn't filled it out in full, am I right in thinking in this case, he's actually filled in more than he needed to? So so yes, he did. He did give more than he was required to. As you say, it's quite famously reported that name, rank, and number was all a serviceman needed to give in order to identify themselves to the holding power, which in turn would go to the protecting power of Switzerland or some other neutral country. And then from there, it was reported back to, in this case, the UK, to update their list of who had been captured and this all took time you know famously it would take weeks if not months for information to filter back to their families nonetheless some put their home address to ensure that yeah so so basically the the point of giving their next of kin and home address was as much as they probably knew this was a phony red cross form because red cross forms didn't typically ask what your squadron number what airplane you what airplane you flew uh where friends were who your friends were who who your commanding officer was where you trained yeah not typically part of the red cross form next to kin and home address might have been i'm not entirely sure but nonetheless it was often almost a fail safe on the on behalf of the prisoners at work because of course they were being told you need to give all the you need to fill this all out so we can inform your family now many of them knew that their families would have been told that they were missing in action at the very least inevitably you know mothers fathers brothers sisters extended family girlfriends wives and children of course would be sitting there thinking mia means kia when of course in this case and in the case of hundreds of thousands of others it meant they were actually captured as pow's however providing details of next to kin and home address as much as they probably knew this was phony and he says that it was phony it was a fail safe just to kind of make sure that if this was just the extra information i give to make sure my family find out i'm safe it's a risk worth taking if you're a recently captured discombobulated prisoner of war who's just spent two days in the dinghy yeah and probably suffering from some considerable stress yes exactly yeah and has probably spent those two days in the dinghy thinking about how their family will respond and be worried about them being reported as missing in action. Yeah, so it makes perfect sense. Yes, it does. And from from there, as you say, he was in Dulag Luft. He was actually taken fairly quickly to a hospital again. So I said earlier that he had received injuries and the injury in his right thigh actually plays quite an important part in this escape. So yes, he'd, he'd been in Dulag Luft for about a month by this stage and was in and out of hospital a couple of times a week, you know, three times a week for treatments, which would explain why I'd been in as long as a month you know yeah. it certainly wasn't unknown to be in for a month three weeks was about average but a month wasn't unknown and if he was getting hospital treatment three times a week i would say it was pretty typical actually in actual fact i mean as much as we say his his injuries must have been fairly serious there's clearly something about this guy because on the 2nd of, of september he made his first escape attempt by getting out of the hospital waiting room i, I quite enjoyed this effort actually yes it is yeah he says that i'd been placed with three frenchmen in the waiting room the door was locked i got through the window wearing the nurse's cloak which i had stolen impressive great detail like that yeah 
And there is something of a history of drag playing a part in Prisoner of War Escapes. Oh, it definitely was encoded. So yes, that. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I went through the courtyard and passed the guard on the main gate. I walked through the town and into a wood where I converted my trousers into shorts. However, he, this escape didn't last too long in fact, it only lasted a couple of hours because he says I was picked up that night by civilians during an air raid while I was stealing apples from a garden. Again, I quite enjoy that detail. Bit of scrumping while on, on the run. Yeah. However, the, on, on this occasion it actually led to him being caught. He was taken to the nearby police station, uh, held, in, held in the jail there for a day or two and then was then sent to Old Flag 10C at Lubeck. So he actually didn't spend that, that long in Lubeck, uh, only about a month from the 13th of September until the end of October. And from there he went on to Old Flag 6B at Warburg. So while he was in Warburg for quite a while actually, uh, round about a year or so from October 1941 to September 1942 and while there he actually made two further escape attempts. He was involved in two tunnels. The first one broke and six men got out but the tunnel was discovered before it was his turn and then in the second one he was involved in constructing another tunnel in May 1942 but the tunnel was discovered before it was completed. Right. So in, in both cases he unfortunately was unsuccessful. After his two escape attempts from Warburg, he was actually moved to Stalwith 3. However, he, was, he wasn't involved at all in the Great Escape because he was actually in the East Compound and the Great Escape was in the North Compound. Correct, yes. He left Stalwith 3 on the 29th of February 1944. He was sent away to a hospital attached to Stalag 8B, which is Lambsdorff. And the reason for that was because he'd actually cut his wrist with a razor. Now, mm. he doesn't clarify whether this was intentional or whether it was a ruse to go somewhere or whether there were other issues involved here. It says that he remained there for a little over a month, about six weeks or so. We'll come back to it later because there's a couple of just slightly odd behaviours that crop up repeatedly throughout his escape attempt. Having stayed in this hospital to get treatment for about six weeks in Lambsdorff, he was moved to Highlag 4D. DZ at Annaberg. Now the purpose of this was actually to be repatriated. This is where I go back to the injury he initially received when he was shot down in his right thigh and why it's actually quite important to this entire escape. Yeah, because normally it would be medical grounds that you'd be repatriated under. Precisely, yes. Right. And he actually says that he had passed the repatriation board at Stalwith 3 in October 1942. So we're now at April oh, wow. 1944. So yeah. we're talking about nearly you know 18 months to two years since he passed the repatriation board. Now it wasn't uncommon to pass the repatriation board and then take a while to be processed and have you partly because i think the germans were always suspicious that you were on one yeah and so he had actually been passed by the repatriation board to be sent back to the uk as early as october 42 but by april 44 they'd finally got around to sending him back so he was positioned in preparation for being sent home yes he was being held in a camp to be sent home yeah because of his injuries sustained being shot down being shot down yeah which is quite significant because the assumption there is basically you are so significantly injured that you will not fight again. Oh, so that's what they were looking for to send them back home. Basically, going to be yeah. mounting an attack against the Axis powers. They're not going to send back someone who is in a recoverable position so may end up on the front line again. Right. They're willing to repatriate people whose injuries are so severe that they're never going to recover again. And so he, he says that he was held at this camp until the 12th of May when he again made an attempt to escape but was recaptured after a couple of hours. So he states, On the 12th of May 1944, a party was allowed to sunbathe outside the compound 
at Annabird. I was a member of this party but was not closely guarded. I walked away from the party but my absence was discovered within a few minutes. I stole a bicycle which was lying nearby and a German Unteroffizier fired several shots at me. I was not wounded and I succeeded in evading my pursuers by discarding the bicycle and going into a wood. I walked south through the wood and later in the day stole another bicycle in a village. A civilian saw me stealing this bicycle and raised the alarm. I was caught by several civilians. My hands were tied with ropes and I was taken to a military camp about three kilometres away. On arrival there, my hands were untied and I was detained there until the following day when I was taken back to Heilig 4DZ. Mm. So why would you be escaping potentially from a known route back to the UK? Yeah, he's got to get a jail-free card. Yeah. He is being sent back to the UK, so why is he still trying to escape? As I said earlier, there are some... Signs. Signs. Some odd behaviours taking place that just make me wonder if two days in the dinghy, able to see home with a major injury in his right thigh, hadn't done him much good. Every chance. Yeah. As I say, he is now on his way home. He is making his way back to the UK from Germany into France. And as I say, he has essentially got to get a jail-free card. He is part of the repatriation party to go home. He has already made one escape attempt. And his final and successful escape attempt took place only a couple of days later. So he was recaptured on the 12th of May, but his final attempt is on the 15th of May. And so on the 15th of May, he escaped from the train which was taking the repatriation party to Marseille. He only got as far as Lyon, and it was at Lyon that he left the train at the railway station. He says, I climbed over a wall in the goods yard and walked through Lyon. On reaching the outskirts, I walked south along a road. After a time, I came to the railway track and I followed it until I arrived at a goods yard. So this is early on the morning of the 16th of May now. So yeah. he's, he's walked a fair distance here. And he says, I saw a French railway worker there at 0500 hours on the 16th of May and I asked him to give me directions about goods trains going south. Now again, I, this seems odd behaviour given that he was already on a train heading south. Yeah. Which he's left to go and get a train. Heading south. Yeah. Nonetheless, actually, this railway worker was hugely, hugely helpful and actually quite influential here because he, he basically insisted Cowley go to his home in Lyon. He finished work at 0600 hours and he took him to his home. Cowley stayed with this French railway worker until 1800 hours, so 12 hours in total. And in that time, this goods worker had arranged that a railway guard would take him directly to Switzerland, which of course was a neutral country. Furthermore, before leaving the house, he gave him civilian clothes, money and food for the journey. So in, in very helpful. Very helpful in a very short space of time, having just come off night shift. Yes. When most people <laughs> just want to go to bed. Just want to go to bed. He's he's gone above and beyond. Now of course we don't have a name for this person. Nope. Uh, we very rarely do. But nonetheless, he's undoubtedly gone above and beyond the call of duty here to help Cowley escape. So uh, the the goods worker took him back to the goods yard and introduced him to the guard who took him on a train for Geneva at seven o'clock that night. Only fourteen hours after arriving, mm. he's already on a train to Geneva. Which is heading back, if anything... To Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> so head, heading in the wrong direction. To home. After a couple of hours, they stopped at a railway station near the Swiss border, at which point the guard was told that the Gestapo knew he was on board and were going to inspect this train. So the guard arranged for him to get onto another train, also heading for Switzerland. Uh, yes. But the guard there said, actually, the Gestapo are inspecting all the trains. Right. Would it be common for the Gestapo to be acting as that? Would it be in place of the local police or was it down... To, I suppose actually by then... They're still in occupied France at this stage. They haven't reached Switzerland. And we're also 
just after the Great Escape at this point. So yes, yeah, we would. So yeah. the Gestapo were obviously a lot more onto prisoners of war escaping by then, post yeah. Great Escape. So interestingly dangerous time to be embarking on escaping. Yes, absolutely. So the guards essentially said, look, you're not going to get to Switzerland with our help. You're going to have to make your own way there. And so he got himself into the goods yard at this railway station that they stopped at, made his way to a food train, and managed to climb into a wagon through a broken ventilator, then fixed the ventilator from the inside so that he was, wasn't detectable. It stopped at a place called Heligard, mm-hmm. where they were due to have a customs check. And he says, I overheard the conversation that the train would remain there until the 19th of May. Now, having spent two days in a dinghy, I can't imagine he was in too much of a rush to now spend two days in a train. train. Even if it was stacked with food. Even if it was stacked with food. And we have no evidence that it was, but uh, for all we know, it was a completely empty wagon. So he managed to make his way out of the wagon under the cover of darkness, walking northeast along secondary roads spending the night in the in a barn he basically did the same thing for the next day making his way towards the swiss frontier from france on foot by eight o'clock the next evening he called at a farm where he was given a meal and was told that he was only 10 kilometers from the swiss frontier okay to be fair he's making good progress you know his ambition is to reach switzerland almost there he's almost there he's he's made his way on foot without being captured and so he decided to walk along the railway track and he says he passed the German sentries on the frontier while the guard was being changed. He had removed his boots, but the Swiss guards saw him arriving and placed him immediately under arrest. Now, I've, I've said before that initially I always find it quite odd that the Swiss were arresting prisoners of war upon arrival in, in Switzerland. But of course, they're effectively illegal immigrants. Yes. They've arrived without any identification, any paperwork, and made their way into a neutral country. So it's actually not unreasonable for a Swiss frontier guard to arrest someone, someone, coming, over the border. someone coming over the border without going through a due process. And if anything, it probably kept them a bit safer shortly, because they would have been taken in, they'd been sheltered. They'd been fed. taken about 10 kilometres over the border <laughs> so they were being taken away from the germans it was almost a welcome yeah development as much as it might have been a bit shocking to be placed under arrest having arrived in a neutral country it was probably as you say not unwelcome on the whole and so he does say i was searched and questioned and, and he immediately stated that he was an escaped british prisoner of war and was taken to a military prison in geneva i suppose this is where my next kind of little sign starts cropping up because having arrived in neutral switzerland he now goes through a series of sustained escape attempts so as much as he had been arrested and was being held in switzerland he still keeps on trying to escape Mm -hmm. whereas ordinarily having reached a neutral country most prisoners of war are delighted (laughs) and even if they're placed under arrest they're not looking to get out again they're quite happy to just kind of be safe in a neutral country okay they might have an onward journey beyond switzerland it was the time to rest it was the time to rest recuperate have have a meal relax talk to the embassy exactly the the military attache in geneva or Bern or wherever they were sent so on the 21st of may he made another escape attempt he says that he'd been left unguarded for a few minutes in a passage in the prison and he just walked out through the main door and went immediately to the British consulate where he met the military attaché. Now, the military attaché did say that it was not possible for him to get back to the UK. Now, again, upon immediate reading, I, can, I my immediate response to that was, well, the evasion lines that were operating through Switzerland had been operating by this stage for now on four years. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. The processes for getting them back to the UK were definitely in place. But then it occurred to me that this is barely two weeks, 16 days prior to D-Day. Of course, yeah. 
And my strong suspicion here is that they were basically, even the British military attaché was trying to keep him in Switzerland so that he wasn't wandering through occupied France at the time of D-Day. Now, yeah. not because it would hinder the Normandy attack, quite the opposite. I can't imagine he would have got to Normandy in those 16 days, but more for his own safety because if he was recaptured on, say, the 7th of June, there might have been some fairly harsh treatment. Harsh treatment, exactly. So that is my suspicion that's going on here. However, he doesn't seem to have taken it too well and kept on trying to escape to the point that the British air attaché ended up having to take another statement from him and essentially sort of calm down a little bit. Yeah. And ha- having taken that statement from him, he was then sent to a quarantine camp where he remained for three weeks. So it does read to me a little bit like they're trying to keep him... Protected. Protected. Still. Yeah, put a little bit of an arm around him just to kind of make sure he's okay. Yeah. They probably have a... If not a very clear idea of what's coming, they would have a shrewd idea of what's coming, I would imagine, by this stage. Would the military attaché have known that he was actually had been selected for repatriation? It's not beyond the realms of possibility, yes. So they've suddenly, potentially, there's a case that this guy's turned up and they've gone, they've taken his statement, sent it back to London or wherever through the protecting mm-hmm. powers who have gone, oh yeah, he jumped a train. Maybe that's why they then said, we'll keep you here for a bit. Mm-hmm. and see how things go so we know where you are and we can look after you mm-hmm. I think there's a very real possibility now there's no way of knowing for certain mm. but I wouldn't be surprised and I, I also don't think it's coincidence that he was handed over to the British legation in Bern on the 8th of June two days after D-Day right so again it Back feels this countryman effectively yeah in a neutral country so he, he stayed with the british legation where he was accommodated at a hotel provided with civilian clothes money and what have you so he's, by now he's effectively back to relative normality yeah basically he's in a neutral country he's in Bern. he's in the capital of switzerland he's been given money civilian clothes he's free to go wherever he likes he's staying at a hotel he's effectively operating as a free man so on the 20th of june having discovered that he was due to be charged by the swiss authorities for a previous escape attempt in which he supposedly kicked a guard which he denies which he denies he decided to make his way by train towards the french border and get his way out of switzerland right so he gets most of the way and stops off just short of the french border because of course there were checks on the train Mm -hmm. across the border so he he gets off the train and he makes his way on foot cross country making his way through fields and hills yeah there's one particular detail i want to draw out on this because i think it's brilliant he basically says while walking through the fields i collected an old suit from a scarecrow and from there made my way into france crossing on the 30th of june that's brilliant it's great isn't it yeah what are the chances of finding a scarecrow with a suit that fits you (laughs) being the same shape it's a long time since i've been the shape of a scarecrow yeah me too it almost gets even better because he almost immediately runs into the german guards having arrived in france i met german guards on the hill on the 2nd of july and was ordered to halt i did not do so and the guards fired at me i ran into a woods and climbed into a tree where i stayed for some time having got away from his guards presumably by hiding in the tree long enough that they didn't find him. He managed to make his way to an official in a French town called Guillois and stayed with this French official for a night. From there, he made his way onto the next town or village, was clearly sent to 
a house by presumably by this French official. Now as I say we're about a month after D-Day by this stage and the French resistance and on the ground are extremely active at this stage. Yeah I imagine they would be. He actually ended up making contact with the Maquis in the mountains and remained with them for about a week until the 10th of July. So we're talking about from the 4th of July until the 10th of July. So presumably fighting with the French resistance during this entire time. So having made contact with the French resistance they actually help him slowly but surely make his way north almost town hopping through France heading north towards the Allied beachhead beachhead exactly by the 19th of july he's on the verge of making contact with the allied forces now it doesn't specify precisely when he did make contact with them but it does say that he returned to the uk from the allied beachhead on the 17th of august so fighting is still going on in normandy at this stage he managed to get back across the line but he managed to get back across the line with help from the french resistance so of course would have been in contact with the allied forces this entire time so they would have likely have let them know that they had one of their servicemen with them and that he was making his way north. So they will have almost certainly, in fact, it states the remainder of my journey was arranged for me. So I think the clear indication here is that it was actually the French resistance that organised for him to make contact with the Allied forces here. And so he returned to the UK on the 19th of August. We know from the injuries that he sustained, it was major enough that he was unlikely to have fought again throughout the entirety of the war. I certainly have some question marks over his decision making here. You know, he he was part of a repatriation party making its way back to the UK. If they would have been protected going through occupied France. Yeah. And he left that protection to make his way to neutral Switzerland. Having made neutral Switzerland, he then made repeated escape attempts to leave a neutral country. Did eventually escape, in inverted commas, from a neutral country back into occupied France. Almost immediately ran into German guards and was almost immediately caught again. Luckily made contact with the resistance who helped him get back. But it it seems to me like he was successful in his escape in spite of his best efforts, not because of them. Yeah. Nonetheless, he was successful in his escape. He certainly had a very interesting post-escape career. Now, as I say, he probably didn't fight again. We have no evidence either way. He may have done, he may not have done. But the likelihood is because of his earlier injuries, he probably wasn't. If they were bad enough to be repatriated, he almost certainly wasn't going to be fighting again. However, his records does say that he was a student before the war. It says his peacetime occupation was he was a student. He was actually a law student. Ah, right. Okay. Now, he was 22 when he was captured and 25 when he escaped. So he was relatively old for a student, but he hadn't yet qualified. And he actually qualified as a barrister in 1946, Okay. first year after the war, and practiced mainly on the Midland circuit based in Nottingham and became a QC in 1965. In 1950, now we've had escapees before who have dabbled in politics. And in, indeed actually got on to notable things. Indeed, yes. And I've said before about how there seems to be a certain personality type, almost a mindset, that leads to someone being an escaper. And I do wonder a little bit if it's a similar personality type that leads you to becoming a politician. Because <laughs> there's quite a few of them that crop up from time to time. So he stood for election in 1950. He stood in the general election in the Lincolnshire seat of Brake for the Liberal Party. So he did finish third behind Lance Malaliu. Although he did okay, he got about 7,000 votes. He at least managed to hold on to his deposit, but it's nowhere near enough to actually win the seat. And that was the last time he stood for election. Right. Uh, However, it was not the last time he had a brush with liberal politics or politicians. Right. Because he would go on to be involved as a QC for the defence team of the Jeremy Thorpe affair. Now, oh. how familiar are you with this story? Well, maybe last year I watched an interesting uh, doc 
documentary drama series, I think, about this. So I, I think I'm fairly familiar with the, the general so, lines of the story. Yes. Yeah, so let, let's, for our listeners, let's summarise the Jeremy Thorpe affair. At the time of the story in question, Jeremy Thorpe was the leader of the Liberal Party. We're talking about a couple of years after Cowley had stood for election for the Liberals. We're talking about sort of late 60s, early 70s by this stage. He had an affair with a gentleman called Norman Scott. Mm-hmm. The affair fizzled out after a period of time, but Scott actually kept some incriminating letters that Thorpe had written to him. Now, as a leader of the third major party of the British Parliament, this was almost certainly going to be a major scandal if these letters ever came out. Yeah. Now, while homosexuality had been legalised by this stage, there was still a certain taboo around it. Mm. And so he certainly did not want these letters getting out. And Thorpe essentially resorted to attempting to steal them, bribe him, or indeed threaten Scott in order to get these letters back, none of which particularly worked. Now, copies of these letters by this stage have been being held by the police, have made their way to MI5's file on Thorpe. So th- this had gone right to the top. It was almost like a gentleman's agreement to make yes. sure that this didn't get out. But nonetheless, Scott still had the originals here. Eventually, Thorpe instructed some of his supporters to get rid of Scott. But it's very Thomas Beckett here. You know, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? He doesn't explicitly state that you have to go off and kill Beckett, but more that this person is a pain in my life and someone needs to help me out here. So Thorpe was quite bleak about it, but nonetheless some supporters effectively interpreted this as you need to bump him off on my behalf. And so there was a botched assassination attempt on Scott, which was so badly botched that in actual fact his Great Dane dog was the one that was shot and not Scott. That's quite a bodge. Yes, I mean Great Danes are huge and the body of a dog was effectively found on a moor somewhere with Scott cradling this dog. And so this eventually led to a trial for Thorpe for conspiracy to murder. So already we're talking about a major scandal. He was up for trial for conspiracy to murder along with three other co-conspirators effectively. One of which was a gentleman called John Le Measurer. Now the name John Le Measurer is more famous as the actor who played Sergeant Arthur Wilson in Dad's Army. Correct. This yes. is not the same John Le Measurer. Ah, now, it right. is not a common name, but by total coincidence, there is another gentleman called John Le Measurer who was a co conspirator in all of this. Right, okay. And John Le Measurer's lead QC was one Dennis Martin Cowley. Wow, okay. Who advised Le Measurer to effectively throw Thorpe under the bus. <laughs> Get yourself off and <clears throat> sod the rest of them, was effectively okay. his advice. Now, Le Measure ignored him, all four of them kept him, and they all got off scot-free. Wow. Now, it ruined Thorpe's career, and mm. he eventually died. However, there is an excellent book by John Preston called A Very English Scandal, which is also the name of the miniseries that came out a couple of years ago, starring Hugh Grant as Jeremy Thorpe. That's it. So he did have an interesting post-war career where he dabbled in politics and then had a further brush with liberal politics further down the line as, as, a, QC. as a QC. And uh, eventually he, you know, he retired to move back to the Isle of Man, which is where he's originally from. Yeah. And died in 1985, age 66. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.